church today, we're going to carry on in our Advent sermon series that's titled The Mothers of Jesus. Now, why the mothers of Jesus? Because in the opening of the Gospel of Matthew, which, by the way, are the very first words of the New Testament, before Matthew even tells the story of Jesus' birth, he gives a long genealogy that shows how the seed of the gospel that was promised all the way back to Abraham passed from him, from one generation to the next, all the way up to the birth of Jesus Christ. And in that genealogy, Matthew surprisingly includes five women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And there we read in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 1, And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, that is, Bathsheba. So that makes Bathsheba a great-grandmother to King Jesus. And that, my friends, is a big deal. And so it's good and right for us to be curious and to ask this question. Of all the women across those generations that could have been mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, like why does Matthew include Bathsheba? So in order to answer that question, I want to, open, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Young disciples, you're going to need that scripture noted on your guide, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. You can find that on page 262 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. There I want to walk through Bathsheba's story and then answer our question in three ways. I think Matthew includes Bathsheba first to show God's heart for the oppressed, to show God's heart for the oppressor, and to show that in his name all oppression shall cease. Young disciples, you'll see that you'll need blanks filled in from those three points on your guide, but we're going to come back to those points throughout the sermon so you don't have to scratch them all down real fast, okay? Now, I do want to give a warning. As I unpack the tragic story of the abuse and injustice that Bathsheba experienced, it could be triggering to those who have experienced similar trauma. And however, at the same time, I want you to know I'm praying that the Lord would use this message to heal and to build up. And that would be as part of our ongoing commitment in Antioch to be a safe place. So with that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. If you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Since today's passage is so long, I'm only going to be reading a particular section actually from 1 Kings chapter 1. So if you're turning in your Bibles, flip over to 1 Kings chapter 1, which is not far from where you might be marked in 2 Samuel. The scripture will also be on the screen. Starting in verse 15, church, hear the word of the Lord. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. And Bathsheba vowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? And she said to him, My lord, You swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Skipping ahead to verse 28. Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. 
Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord, King David, live forever. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, one of my favorite things to do around this time of year is to give people a little test to see how well they know the Christmas story. So, y'all want to try a few with me? Let's see how biblically accurate you are. Here we go. When a multitude of heavenly hosts appeared to the shepherds, what did they sing? Anybody? Hark the herald angels sing. Some version of that. Yeah. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to however you translate that, right? So actually the answer is they didn't sing at all. They said. They didn't sing, they said. You can read it for yourself. I ain't lying to you. All right, second, you're 0 for 1. What did the innkeeper tell Mary and Joseph? There's no room in the inn. Sorry. Actually, the Bible doesn't even mention an innkeeper. It just says there was no room in the inn. Y'all assuming there's an innkeeper there saying things because of all those Christmas things that you've been to over the years. Okay, so you're 0 for 2. Third, did Jesus cry when he was born? Yes, doesn't mention it. Does anybody want to quote the song that actually talks about this? No crying he makes, away in a manger, right? So the answer is, yes, he cried. He was a baby. Come on. It's just the song that says no crying he makes, okay? 0 for 3. All right. How many wise men came to see Jesus? Three. The Bible doesn't say. It actually only says that they brought three gifts. So we just assume there's three dudes, but you actually don't know how many there are. <laughs> Mind blown, okay? Oh, for four. How old was Jesus when the wise men came to visit him? Zero. Two. Okay, some of y'all may get one out of this mix. He was around two years old. All right, so it wasn't like the nativity where it's all the animals and the shepherds and the wise men all there at the same time, okay? It's spread out, it's different. Okay, this is a lot of fun. I can go on with this all day long. But the point is, we often relate to the Christmas story on the basis of stereotypes instead of what the Bible actually says or doesn't say. Y'all know what I mean by stereotype? Let me define it for us. A stereotype is an oversimplified and inaccurate perception of a person or thing. Y'all want a good example of a stereotype? How about we devote an entire sermon to one? All right? For stereotypes, see Exhibit A, Bathsheba. Actually, I can't put up an artistic rendering of her because they're almost all built on our inaccurate perception of her. What exactly is that perception? Well, Bathsheba has often been viewed throughout history as a naked seductress who caused the beloved King David to fall into sin. 
And thus she's often been used as an example of how women cause men to lust and as justification for Christian men viewing all women with suspicion and distrust. To prove my point, let me just ask this. Would you name your daughter Bathsheba? (laughs) Probably not. Why? Because of the baggage of that stereotype. And what's so sad about that is that it basically continues the injustice to a woman who should actually be one of the most appreciated persons in all the Bible. And let's walk through her story together and you'll see what I mean. It begins in the middle of the book of 2 Samuel where the author has been writing about the rise of King David. And he's not only shown conquering the enemies of Israel, but building up a great city called Jerusalem. But God has just promised that his rule, David's rule, will never end because a messianic king will come from his descendants. Y'all, David's got it all. He's like young and ruddy. He's like got this tender heart, like he can make music and poetry. And at the same time, he's like this really awesome warrior who leads people into battle and takes down people like Goliath. Like he's got it all. Like no ancient author in the middle of 2 Samuel is going to interrupt this story with something that reflects poorly on David, let alone makes him out to be a monster. But God doesn't tell people stories just in order to give us an example to follow. He tells people's stories honestly in the scriptures because he's pointing us to our need for a savior. So we read at the beginning of chapter 11, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, let's get at the stereotype the same way that we did with the Christmas story, with a series of questions. First question, was David supposed to be in Jerusalem? No. He was supposed to be leading the army of Israel in battle as they ravaged their enemies. Keep that word in mind. This is what God had raised him up and blessed him to do. But instead, while his soldiers were killing and being killed, David would just kill in time. All right, question number two. Was Bathsheba bathing on the roof? No. The author states twice that David was on his roof, not her on her roof. She was likely in a private courtyard that was only visible from the palace roof. Y'all, back in that day, there was no indoor plumbing, okay? So if you're going to wash yourself thoroughly, you're probably going to go outside. And it's not her being the exhibitionist at all. It's David being a pervert. 
Question three, was Bathsheba trying to seduce David? No. The author writes that she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. That is, she was washing herself following her menstrual cycle. And this was required by the Old Testament law, which means she, unlike David in the scene, was fulfilling what the Lord required of her. Next question. Was Bathsheba the cause of David's lust? Answer is no. The author acknowledges that she was very beautiful, but feminine beauty is not inherently evil, and it can even be appreciated in a godly way. And so since humanities fall into sin, unrestrained nudity is an indignity to the human body. This is why that God dignifies Adam and Eve by clothing them. You remember that in Genesis 3? This is also why Paul uses the analogy of unpresentable parts of the body that are treated with greater modesty. Here, David should have honored Bathsheba by diverting his eyes and his imagination. But instead, in the Hebrew, we get the sense that his gaze, his glance, I'm sorry, became a gaze. You see, Bathsheba was not the cause of David's lust. It was his own sinful heart. Last question here. Was Bathsheba complicit in David's sin? It's a hard question. The answer is no. The author, who shows us just how insanely honest that he is about sin, gives no indication that Bathsheba threw herself into the king's arms. It's actually just the opposite. He writes, David sent messengers and took her. Now, first of all, when a king sends for you, like you don't have a choice in that moment whether to go or not if you want to live, especially if you're a woman in this age. And second, the word for took can be translated to seize, grasp, capture, or obtain. At best, this is sexual coercion. But you still would have to read consent into the text and completely ignore the massive power deferential at play here. So I am convinced that the author is showing David's actions for what it was, rape. Now listen, in this age, Old Testament kings did this, and it was normal. But in the Lord's eyes, this was not normal. And I'm not saying this from wokeness. I'm saying this from the text. Later in the story, when the prophet Nathan confronts David about his actions, he compares David to a rich man who took and killed and ate a poor man's only lamb. That's what David had done to Bathsheba. Remember that word ravaged earlier that I told you to keep in mind? The author is saying that while the army of Israel ravaged Rabbah, David ravaged Bathsheba. He objectified her with his lust. He oppressed her with his power. And he dehumanized her with his discarding. Now, there is a common pattern of shame that almost always follows crimes like this. And it's not described here because the author is summarizing the the, the story. But it does come out just a couple chapters later. In chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, one of David's sons, Amnon, falls in love with his sister Tamar. And there we read this, that Amnon took hold of of Tamar and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. 
And she answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? Then Amnon hated her after he had done this act with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. Now, I'm not saying that this is a one-to-one situation back with chapter 11 and David and Bathsheba, but you do get a sense of the parallel here. Whether or not David hated Bathsheba, we don't know, but he did send her away. And this shameful discarding of Bathsheba, even when he finds out that she is pregnant with his child, y'all, it tosses her like a filthy rag. It treats her less than human. It only continues the ravaging. But that's not all. In so doing, David's also ravaging someone else. Who? Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Young disciples, you'll need to write down Uriah for one of your blanks on your guide as Bathsheba's husband. Remember, y'all, David had inquired about this woman. He knew exactly who she was. And listen to this, Uriah wasn't just some random dude. He was one of David's mighty men. You remember David's mighty men if you've read back through the Old Testament? This is the band of brothers who bought David's rise to power with their blood. That means Uriah was one of David's best friends. And this is where he enters the story. The summary here is that David seeks to cover up his sin by bringing Uriah back home from the front and then repeatedly coercing him, there's that word again, into going and sleeping with his wife, which by the way, if Uriah did that, it would force Bathsheba to participate in the deceit, only adding to the untold trauma that she's already carrying. And so David assumes Uriah will behave like he behaved disregarding what the Lord requires and satisfying himself. And you know why David assumes that that will work? Because Uriah is a Hittite. That is a Gentile who was probably a Jewish proselyte. And so when David asks Uriah why he refuses to go home, because he consistently does, here's what Uriah says. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now see, the the ark is the covenant symbol of God's Old Testament people. And so that shows that Uriah's primary concern is with the Lord and with his people, not with himself unlike David. And so that means the Hittite is being more Hebrew than the Hebrew. And even as the Hebrew king, his friend devours him and his wife. And that becomes all the more more clear in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. 
and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. So Bathsheba must carry her own secret shame. Uriah must carry his own death warrant. This is the murder of an innocent man. And don't miss that it also cost the lives of other soldiers. And don't miss that it also put Joab in the position of obeying his conscience or obeying the king. And taking the blame for a foolish military strategy that got people killed. Y'all see, David's shameful discarding of Uriah, especially when he treats his death just like the happenstance of war, it tosses him like a filthy rag, treats him less than human. It only continues the ravaging. Look at verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, those who take the position that Bathsheba was the seductress will often say at this point that she finally got what she wanted, to have the king and to be the queen. But if that was the case, why would the author show her lamenting and mourning over her husband? And also, wouldn't he say that what David and Bathsheba had done displeased the Lord? But he doesn't. Because like David has brought nothing but grief and death into this righteous couple's life, even as he takes Bathsheba for a wife and her child as a son. Now, if we had more time, I would unpack the rest of the story in chapter 12, but we preached a sermon about that a few years back, so if you want to explore that, you certainly can get on our website and do so. But let me summarize it. In short, God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin. David admits his sin and repents, and God does not have him executed as the law calls for. But he does describe the consequences that David will face for the rest of his life, starting with the death of his son. Then David fasts and pleads for the life of the child. The child dies. David rises and worships the Lord. And then next we read this in verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. Young disciples, you'll need to write down that name Solomon, though he has another name that you'll see here in just a second. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by, the, by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And they lived happily ever after. No way. David comforted his wife means what? More grief and death brought into her life. She was lamenting and mourning. And y'all, I've heard people look at David going in to lay with her here and say like, oh, they're making up. It's like making up. 
Like, bro, you got to have a relationship in the first place before you can make up, okay? Listen, this is the man who objectified her, oppressed her, dehumanized her, discarded her, and ravaged her life by disclaiming her child, murdering her husband, silencing her story, and now she is forced to marry and then birth and then raise and then lose the child of the man who did all that to her? Listen, the fact that she does marry him and have his child and receive his comfort and allow him into her bed and have more children with him and become an amazing mother and a respectable queen, it means that she should be one of the most appreciated persons in all the Bible. But as we've already mentioned, God doesn't just tell people stories in order to give us examples to follow. He tells people stories honestly to show us our need for a, sa- a savior too. For example, or so let me back up here a little bit. Let me return to my original question. Why does God include Bathsheba in the genealogy of Jesus? So three quick answers after we've unpacked her story. First, to show God's heart for the oppressed. We're told that ancient genealogies were often untrustworthy because they would be altered to make the person's pedigree look as good as possible. For example, so take King Herod. You remember King Herod in the Christmas story? Total bad guy. King Herod, are, uh, uh, historians are uncertain of King Herod's ancestry because of how much he Instagrammed it, like how much it was changed in order to make him look good. And we might be tempted here to think the same about Jesus because he is tied as a direct descendant to David, who is considered the greatest king in the history of Israel. But the inclusion of Bathsheba shows that this genealogy, it's not Instagrammed. It's not doctored up to make anybody look better, okay? Jesus doesn't come associated only with those of noble birth and flawless path. In fact, did you notice that the genealogy actually didn't say Bathsheba? Like her name is not, not specifically in there. What does it say instead of Bathsheba? The wife of Uriah. Why? Why would it say that instead of Bathsheba? Like is it just too shameful to even say Bathsheba? It would be too embarrassing? No. It says the wife of Uriah, I think, because in one phrase it includes both her story and Uriah's story. And in the coming of Jesus Christ, you see God's heart for the oppressed like Bathsheba and Uriah, both the abused woman and the murdered man. Listen, it's a picture of all humanity and God's heart for those who have been oppressed. Now, if y'all remember, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he reads this from the prophet Isaiah. He stands up in the synagogue. This is what he reads. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus straight up sits down and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Like, 
Bathsheba, she didn't need to kill David in his sleep in order to avenge herself or her husband. Why? Because she could look to the God who put all her tears in a bottle, Psalm 56, 8, and to his Savior who would come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The second reason why I think Matthew includes Bathsheba is to show God's heart for the oppressor. Without the wife of Uriah there in the genealogy, you get people reading it and saying, wow, and Christianity must be about being a really good religious person like Abraham and David. But include the wife of Uriah and you know what it shows? That even the best people like David are actually capable of being monsters who need a savior too. Yes, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 makes David out to be that monster, but it is only showing what each of us are capable of, especially in the places in our lives where we have power with no accountability. This is the absolute scandal of God's grace here. Like that David isn't axed out of this story, but he continues to be the king. He continues to be the one on which the genealogy pivots. The messianic king comes from the line of Judah and and King David. This is the scandal of God's grace, that his savior comes, not just for the oppressed, but for the oppressor. Listen, even though modern society wants to put us neatly in one category or the other of oppressed or oppressor, and indeed some of you may have experienced one category more than the other, in reality, Before God's eyes who sees all, we're in both categories. Parent, in the sovereign rule of your household, have you not wounded your child a few times when you disciplined them in anger or you ignored them to look at your phone? Man, in the rooftop privacy of your mind, Have you not wounded another when you objectified them with your eyes and your imagination? Woman, in the autonomy of your perspective, have you not wounded another when you summarily define them according to one cross encounter with you? Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4? We just read it a minute ago. He said that to a group of very oppressed people. Here's how they responded. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. Here we are. Hurt people hurt people. That's what we are because of sin stirred up by Satan in the mix. And so aren't you glad to see God's heart, not just for the oppressed, but for the oppressor. That somebody here today who has wounded another could be restored. This week, as crazy as it was, I don't know if y'all heard this story, but Johnny Hunt, a former SBC leader, 
who it came out like a year ago that he had sexually abused someone and he denied it at first and then turned around and finally admitted it and was removed from his positions in ministry. This week, four pastors came out publicly and said that he has now been through a restoration process and can be back in professional ministry. And I look at that and I go, you know what? Johnny Hunt can straight up be restored to Jesus because of the gospel, as scandalous as that is. But dude, he don't need to be put back in a professional ministry position, especially after one year. And so what I'm saying here is not that there aren't consequences to our oppression of others, but there is hope for oppressors. And that is good news for all of us. A final reason why Matthew includes Bathsheba in the genealogy of Jesus to show that in his name, all oppression shall cease. Bathsheba was a slave to David's injustices. And did they ever really cease though? It took a while, but yes, I think so. Because we read this near the end of David's life. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber Now the king was very old and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king and Bathsheba vowed and paid homage to the king and the king said, what do you desire? By the way, she has been in conversation with the prophet Nathan and so this is part of the Lord's will, not just her taking advantage of the situation. She said to him, my Lord, you swore to me, your servant by the Lord, your God saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. She reminds him of this. Maybe this was something that he had promised to her along the way as part of his repentance and recognition of what he had done and seeking restoration with her. Verse 28, after David has considered this, then King David answered, call Bathsheba to me. And so she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore saying, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, As I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said her last recorded words that we know of in the scriptures, May my Lord, King David, live forever. So how was it that Solomon, the wisest king in Israel's history, became king? Because of Bathsheba. The Lord working through Bathsheba, but the Lord working through Bathsheba. And how was it that Solomon became so wise enough to ask God for wisdom when he could have asked God for anything? According to Solomon, he says this because he did not forsake his mother's teaching. Proverbs 1, 8. The stereotype says that Bathsheba pointed David away from the Lord. But reality says that Bathsheba pointed David toward the Lord and toward the Lord's chosen and beloved son as king. And that's where she is truly free. So much so that her last recorded words can be a blessing to her oppressor. May my Lord King David live forever. That is is a redemption that is scandalous. 
And here is the power of Bathsheba's presence in the genealogy of Jesus. Because if she can find freedom in the name of the Lord, anyone can. Because in the words of Jesus from Matthew 12, 42, one greater than Solomon is here. Just listen to how we sing about him in the famous carol, O Holy Night. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. He has identified with our wounding. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. The reason why there's hope for both the oppressed and the oppressor is because Jesus Christ was willingly ravaged for our sake. In his suffering and death, he was oppressed, objectified, dehumanized, disclaimed, silenced, murdered, and then discarded. In experiencing the worst trauma ever known, he simultaneously identified with our wounds and paid the price for our wounding. You see, that's where you can begin to be truly free and truly wise and truly beautiful like Bathsheba or truly forgiven and restored like David. When you look to the Lord's chosen and beloved son as the king over your life. There is the power to bless those who wound you. There is the hope that you don't have to avenge yourself because you can look to the God who puts all your tears in a bottle and to a savior who will wipe every last one of them from your eyes when he comes. And y'all, that's what Advent is about. It's like, this is a weird sermon for Christmas. This doesn't feel like Christmas at all, you know? But this is what Advent is all about. Not just looking back to the first coming of Jesus, but looking forward to the second. And, And you know, that's also why, ironically, we come to this table every week. Have you noticed that if you come to this table, you come to it and then you walk away from it, right? And as you come to it, you're looking back towards something that was done for you in the person of Jesus. And then as you walk away, you're looking forward. The Bible says you're proclaiming with your actions that he's coming again. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, we remember that he took bread And after blessing it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Injustice, oppression, abuse, taken for you, gladly, gladly. Eat this in remembrance of that, in remembrance of me. Not shamefully, because I love you. I invite you to come. Likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. Once again, there's the injustice. There's the oppression. There's the abuse. Gladly given for you. It marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood, and as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. 
Today, from the story of Bathsheba and Uriah and David, we're announcing this, that if David and the wife of Uriah can be proudly displayed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, then there is room at his table for both the oppressed and the oppressor. Our invitation this morning, if you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of this church, is to come forward, to break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice. There'll be gluten-free bread available over on this side. If you're here today and you're not a believer, this invitation is not for you. Rather than taking a symbol, we invite you to take the real thing, which is the person of Jesus Christ himself, who is alive and well today because all the oppression that we could possibly throw at him could not hold him down. He rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven. And he is available to anyone who calls on his name. Would you call on his name this morning in your heart, in your own words? And if you need some help in doing that, come back and talk to one of us who will be in the back to pray with anyone and counsel with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Father, we bow our hearts before you in this moment. Lord, this does not feel like much of a Christmas message, and yet you intentionally included the wife of Uriah along with David in your genealogy because you are not ashamed to hold back the absolute truth about these people and how you redeemed them and how you are willing to wade into the deepest, nastiest brokenness that our world could possibly produce. And you do that because we need a Savior just as much as they do. And so, Lord, in this moment where we are we're encountering Advent, we're looking back to your first coming, we're, we're, we're looking forward to your next coming, and as we do that in the table, Lord, may people come sensing your welcome, sensing the scandal of your grace and taking hold of it. May those who have been wounded by others, whether this week or throughout their lives, would come as they limp, looking to you as the one who carries all their tears in a bottle, longs to wipe them all away one day. And those who are here today, knowing that they have done harm, whether this past week or sometime in their life, wondering, can they come to you? Let them not come on the basis of their own merit, but come on the basis of what Christ has done for them, that they may be forgiven and restored. Lord, have your way in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.